a listener production. Welcome along to episode 118 of the Howie Games Part B featuring multiple boxing world champion Love Morton Dole. Love More's phenomenal book, Tough Love, is available now. Read it. Alrighty, on we go. Let's talk a little bit about your athletic journey. I love stories of young people that we've had on this show that have really left the comforts for want of a better term and it obviously wasn't very comfortable with you at home they've left the comforts of a small town and they've headed to the big city for you i think reading your book the big city was johannesburg how old were you and what was your introduction to wanting to become a professional boxer you're a young man with no money to your name it's it's that classic story of full of hopes and dreams but nothing actually in your backpack mate. that's correct you know i recall making that trip from messina because in South Africa, then, if you really wanted to, you know, excel with boxing, you needed to go work with promoters either in Johannesburg or Cape Town. There had never been a world champion from my little town. I was pub- I was the first ever world champion that came from that small town. So, yeah, I had to move to Johannesburg for that. You know, I was about 21 going 22. I had just finished my year 12. Remember, I started school late. So, you know, up until in my 20s, I was still at school. So, you know, I, I recall that trip, you know, I didn't even have money. I had enough to pay for a taxi to get me to Johannesburg. <clears throat> and I recall when I got there, somebody was supposed to pick me up. But when I got there, it was already, you know, late, in a dark, and everybody was, you know. Back then, because of the crime and the violence that was going on, people used to just disappear from the taxi ranks. So people didn't want to wait too long at the taxi ranks to pick you up. So I recall when I got there, and uh, the guy wasn't there, and I knew no one. There were, I didn't have a. I only had his work number, so I couldn't call his work because it was late hours. And uh, so I had nowhere to sleep, uh, and I decided to sleep in the park. So you know, my first night in Johannesburg, I had to sleep in the park. You know, so that happened. I slept in the park, and then the next day he came and picked me up. And my new home was a gym. So, you know, I spent, you know, some months sleeping in a gym. I would train, you know, with others. And then as soon as everybody leaves, I'll clean up the gym and open up the windows so I can get a bit of fresh air and then turn it into my bedroom. So where does the desire come from to get on that bus and head to Johannesburg and throw yourself into that world? Where does the desire come from within for you? I Look, I believed... I always believed I had the talent. And I always believed that, you know, with the right opportunities, if I'm given the opportunity to prove to everybody that I've got the talent, then I would. So that's where the desire came from. And But apart from that, you know, I knew I could get far. Hmm. When I started boxing, I used to tell people that someday you're going to be sitting at home and watching me on TV fight, you know, watching me fight from Las Vegas. And people used to laugh at me. And it happened. I was also, like I said, I needed money. I was hungry. I was poor. I needed to help my siblings back home. And I knew only through boxing I could. So that's where the desire came from. So if that's the desire, you you become a professional and your record, mate, is quite extraordinary. 64 fights, 49 wins, 13 losses, 31 of those 49 wins by knockout. We'll get to the winning, but when I was very lucky to have Robert Whitaker on this show and we talked about what happens when you're on the back foot, 
and what happens when you're on the front foot in sporting terms. When you are losing a fight and you're getting hit and things are going against you, what do you draw on inside yourself at that point, love more when things are going wrong in the ring? Look, there were there were a lot of things going wrong for me. I recall, remember again, mm. at the time I turned professional, it was so during that apartheid era. So for a black fighter, you know, as a young up-and-coming fighter, you need sponsorships. You need people to help you financially so you can just focus on your training. Now, as a black fighter, during apartheid South Africa, it was hard to get sponsorship. You could be the best talented fighter. You could be ranked number one or number two in the world, but, you know, you still wouldn't get sponsorship because most businesses were owned by white South Africans. And so it was hard for me to get that opportunity you know, to get sponsorships. And But again, the dealings, you know, I had, again, you know, with promoters, you know, boxing is a beautiful sport, but it can be brutal. And there's a lot of well, what I call sharks. There's a lot of sharks in that sport. There is. Why is that? Why is there so many shifty people involved in the financial dealings in boxing? Unfortunately, that's how it is. Yeah. got to realise too, you know, boxers are not uh, the most, they're not the most intelligent people out there, most, most fighters. They're not the most educated people out there. And these people, you know, the managers and promoters, they come in, they take advantage of that. Which is one thing, you know, why I decided to pursue my education because of some of these dealings with boxing promoters and managers. I recall when I first had my fight, you know, I was paid something like 250 rand, which was you know, something like $25. Then I had to pay the, the manager his cut, you know, 15% from the $25. Jeez. So people often think, oh, you know, once you turn pro, you're going to go make a lot of money. No, that's not what happened. It took me a while before I could, you know, make some good money. It, it's a tough spot. There was opportunities to come and fight in Australia and pursue a boxing career in Australia. When you got off the plane, or how old were you at that point, and what was your knowledge or understanding of this country you were flying to? Now, that was in 1995. Now, before I came to Australia, I did some research, and one of the things that I found out was that uh, Australia used to have a Keep Australia Wide policy, Yes. So when, when I came to Australia, I pretty much expected to be treated the same way. I expected white people to treat me the same way white South Africans treated me because of what I read about that, you know, keep Australia white policy. The funny thing is when I came to this country, I was shocked. And that's one thing that made me fall in love with the country. People didn't see a black man in me. People saw a human being. You know, here I was, an outsider from South Africa, fighting a local indigenous boy and, and people were cheering for me and people, not just that, but you know, the way people spoke to me, they, they spoke to me with respect. Unlike back in South Africa, even though, you know, with my profile as a fighter then, I was already ranked, you know, in the top 15 in the world, but still people treated me as a savage because I just happened to be black. And remember 1995 was after mm. South Africa had become a democratic state, but nothing had changed then. It was still too early. So I fell in love with the country because of the reception that I got when I came to the country. And, and I recall going back to South Africa, uh, I was married and telling my wife, we're moving to Australia. And that's exactly what we did the following year, we moved to Australia. And I'm grateful that I made that move because 
Australia has been beautiful to me. It's been beautiful to my family. Australia has provided me with all those opportunities that my own country of birth wouldn't provide. I was able to educate myself because I was given those opportunities. And I remember before my mother passed away, one of the things that I used to discuss with her was I was not prepared to have children in South Africa. And she used to say, oh, Lama, you got to make me grandchildren one day. And I used to say, no, I wasn't prepared to have children and raise them in a country that was torn apart by racial discrimination. I needed to have children in a country where they'll be mm. not judged by the color of their skin, you know. They'll be provided every opportunity they could have. If they fail, it's because they chose not to work hard, not because yeah. they, were, you know, they were denied opportunities because of the color of their skin. So... Because of that reception that I received, I decided this is the country where I wanted to start a family. And, and I'm glad all my children were born here. And I am glad you came here and I'm glad it is part of your home as well because obviously you've done so much for Australia and Australians as well. And I'm sure you'll get back to South Africa at some stage. Your book details, we touched on boxing promoters and those around the outside of the sport. You were As you progressed, you were promised opportunities to become a world champion that didn't arrive. We won't go into the full details of some of the shenanigans that went on behind the scenes, but for our listeners, Lovemore was promised and promised and promised and people and people and people failed to deliver for you. What have you learnt about dealing with and overcoming with disappointment? Look, it it made me a stronger person. Uh, It made me, I'm actually, you know, grateful of some of the things that happened. Like, for example, I remember I had problems, you know, with promoter Bill Modi. But the other thing also, you know, when I came to Australia, I came on what used to be called a distinguished talent visa. Yep. Which meant I had to win almost every fight and I had to show that I had distinguished talent to remain in the country. So I wasn't just fighting to win and make money, but I was also fighting to remain in the country. And winning a world title would have made it a lot easier for me to remain in the country. But yeah. he was denying me that opportunity. And and the worst part of it is uh, he was my sponsor through the immigration. So, you know, he used to threaten me, you know, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'll pull your sponsor from the immigration and you're going to get sent back to Africa. Okay. That went on for a while. And then eventually, as soon as I got my permanent residence, I told Modi I wasn't going to fight ever again. And I was happy for him to sue me if he wanted to. So for 14 months, I was out of action because of the contractual dispute. Now, it was during that period that I decided I was going to enroll at university and study. So which is why I say I don't regret what happened because it opened up other opportunities for me. It allowed me to go enroll at uni and study, you know, uh, and prepare for a life, you know, after boxing. It prepared me to deal, you know, with shifty lawyers, you know, and shifty managers. <laughs> so eventually, you know, um, my contract with Modi expired after, you know, um, ran it, its course after, you know, 14 months. But I had lost my ranking from number two in the world. I was ranked nowhere in the world. So I had to start all over again, you know, which is another thing that, you know, that I always tell people with perseverance, hard work, you know, and dedication, you will still make your dream come true. It doesn't matter all these obstacles you have to overcome to get where you want to you wanna go. And 
that that's a story I always share with people. I went on after that to you know to become the IBF world champion, the, the IBO world champion, the WBF world champion. People often ask me why law. People want to know why I decided to study law. I would say one of the reasons because of my dealings with promoters and managers. But one of the reasons was, you know, an incident that occurred in South Africa, you know, when I was 16 years of age, during apartheid South Africa. A, a white girl took a liking on me at a time, you know, when uh, mixed relations were not allowed. That pissed off her father, and who was a very powerful man, and eventually I got arrested on trumped-up charges. You know, apparently I had sexually assaulted her. But the good thing is the girl said, you know, if you hit him with those charges, I'm going to tell the whole world the truth. But eventually they just locked me up in custody. You know, I was locked up for 90 days with no charge. 90 days? Three months with no charge. You know, back then they had a law where they could lock up political activists for up to 90 days without a charge. But the law was getting abused and used on anyone they didn't like. And I happened to be the victim. And I recall after the 90 days, I was dragged to the local court. I came before a magistrate. On that day, I was charged, you know, with stealing. And apparently I stole some candy from a supermarket. <clears throat> and then I get sen- sentenced to six cards. So, you know, the police dragged me to the police station, you know, to do the lashing, you know. So, and uh, a la- like, yeah, lash- it's, it's a cut, it's a lashing. It's a wound, lashing, a lashing, yeah, and it drew blood. You know, I, I saw carry scars on my back and in my buttocks from, you know, but, you know, I recall, you know, they were, when they were beating me up, they caught referring to me as a kafir, you know, a kafir, which was a very, very derogatory term. And I recall resorting to what got me into boxing in the first place, that anger. You know, I recall I got so angry because they just kept referring to me as a kafir and I told them to go F themselves. But that was the biggest mistake I made because it almost cost cost me my life. You know, they started beating me up. They broke my left arm. They chewed my front tooth. They set a dog on me, almost beat off my eye. A dog? A dog, a German shepherd. People often see the scar on my face. People often think it's from boxing. You know, no, but this is from a dog bite. I recall when I was recovering in hospital, you know, I recall thinking to myself, you know, this is unfair. This is not right. This is not justice. And I recall then that's when I decided, you know what, someday I was going to become a lawyer or a political activist and I was going to fight for justice. And I knew if we didn't have enough black lawyers, this wasn't going to stop. This was going to continue. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, I decided to become a lawyer, apart from right. my dealings with, you know, promoters and, and managers. And I'm grateful that I did it because today I get to fight for justice for other people, in particular indigenous people here in Australia. I see a lot of similarities between right. indigenous people and myself. If you look at it, there are so many indigenous people incarcerated. And I do a lot of pro bono work for indigenous people. You know, for me, it's a way of giving back to the community and being grateful to the owners of this land. I don't know what to say. Like, it's my job to ask questions. I'm not too bad at it, love more. But when you talk about being incarcerated unfairly, being whipped, being attacked by a dog, and you've talked in the podcast how you need to forgive, I'm not sure I could. Well, you carry that, you know, anger with you forever because it's going to destroy you. It will destroy you. So you got to find a way 
to deal with it. And one of the ways to deal with it is to forgive and move on with your life. And mm. like I said, I find everything that happened in my life prepared me for a better person. That incident in South Africa prepared me, allowed me to think about becoming a lawyer. Today I'm grateful I'm a lawyer. I can assist other people. I had something to fall back on at the end of my boxing career. There are so many sad stories in boxing. Mm. A lot of fighters, you know, finish their careers, you know, penniless because of these sharks they work with. And some fighters remain in the sport too long because they got nothing to fall back on. If you got something right. that you love doing that's challenging, you don't have to stay long in the sport because it's a risky sport. As much as I love it, boxing, you know, it's a very, very brutal sport. Mm. You can love boxing, but boxing will never love you back. And, and I'm so glad that I finished, you know, my boxing career while my brain cells are still intact because there are a lot of fighters that finish their careers, you know, in, in, in a very bad way. More of Love More in a moment. I was actually doing a bit of work on the back catalogue the other day and saw the name Andrew Gaze back in episode 75. The episode covers Gaze's brilliant hoop journey, but just as much illustrates just how funny a man Andrew Gaze is. I was actually going to come here, in here, and, and just set the record straight that I, I feel a little embarrassed because, um, you know, I thought I'd be a little bit higher up in the pecking order, and here I am, what, number 75 guess. So we've actually gone through 74 more important people than me, and then, you're right, you come in here and very, very casually slipped in the fact that it is now 20 minutes, which is impressive. I, I'd like to it's see good some numbers. Evidence. Yeah, I'd love to see some evidence of that. But the only evidence is, is I sit in a very, very nice studio. Yes. There's no doubt about that. It's not yours. It's the, no. the good people here at Triple M that obviously borrowing it to you. But then mm. I think, how can a man that's got 20 million <laughs> downloads start the arrangement here with an elastic band around the microphone? We've now, had a couple of technical hitches. I, I'd suggest if you've got 20 million downloads and you have to use elastic bands, you talk about my people, your people need to have a good outlook on themselves. Because you should not be operating with elastic bands with 20 million downloads. It's not good enough, really, is it? It's, <laughs> it's, it's a, a cut price operation. Because I like to hit my hand on the table yes. and a little bit, I might lose an eye if that thing shoots off the microphone and hits me in the pork pie. That's Andrew Gaze, the incomparable Andrew Gaze on episode 75 of the show. Alrighty, let's get back to Love More. I want to ask you about your first world title, but before that, something in the book on a more light-hearted way. You talked about sparring as a as a training partner with Floyd Mayweather. I found it, I found it incredibly entertaining. It, I really, it took me behind the scenes of of this guy that we only see in the ring. <laughs> yeah, that was something else, you know, Floyd. Floyd is always surrounded by a group of yes men. And that, that's the thing, you know, I think money gives you power and control and people will do anything to be around someone who's got money. And I recall when I went there because I was asked, you know, at the time I was being managed by Al, Al Heyman, who is Mayweather's manager as well. So they asked me to come help Mayweather prepare for his fight, you know, against Ricky Heron. So I was his main sparring partner. Mm-hmm. And I recall when I got there, I didn't go into sparring right away. You know, I thought I would watch and see what's going on. And I needed to get over my jet lag. 
So when I watched him, you know, when he was sparring, you know, he was always putting down his sparring partners, calling them names and all that. Every fighter always talk about, we got the remedy. We, we gonna beat Mayweather, we got the remedy, shut up. And, and I didn't appreciate that. And I recall calling, you know, Al Heyman, telling Al, look, I'm here, I'm happy to assist this guy, but I'm not gonna put up with being, you know, called names and all that. I'll say, no, don't worry, love, I'll take care of that, okay? So I remember the first parent session, Mayweather wasn't saying much, but I knew Mayweather doesn't listen to anyone. So would he listen to some sparring partner telling him, don't, you know, <laughs> don't try and put me down? <laughs> so I knew along the way he was going to say something. So, you know, I, 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 I had to prepare myself and I thought about, you know, I got to apply some reverse psychology when dealing with this guy. The second day I was sparring, it didn't take long. He started referring to me as Jumanji. Come on, Jumanji, come on, Jumanji. So I said, no, you're for Jumanji is not from Africa. You know, try Shaka Zulu. So that caught him up by surprise, you know, and when his yes men were laughing, <laughs> you know, he didn't appreciate that. Look, it was great, you know, working with a guy, you know, you know, he deserves to be pound for pound the best fighter in the world because he really works hard in the gym and he's a natural talent. And often people don't talk about the good things that Mayweather does. He might be this, you know, he comes across, you know, acting like he's this tough guy, he's this uh, bad guy. But he does a lot for his community. Right. And I recall during Thanksgiving, you know, I recall seeing him driving around, giving food, you know, really? to people in the street and giving away money to people in the street. So people don't often talk about those things. There's a good side of him. And when, when you're a multiple world champion, you're an elite boxer, you fought all sorts over your career. When you're sparring with Mayweather, can you see something different in that level of fighter? Yes, I could say, look, one thing I picked up with Mayweather was he had great hand speed and uh, he had a very sharp eye. When I say sharp eye, it's like he could see punches and, you know, he can see punches coming and he knew how to react. So, you know, he, that's why I say he's a natural fighter, but because, you know, of the fact that he also works hard, that's why he's pound for pound the best fighter. So, yeah, I was able to see the difference between him and all these other fighters that I fought. He's got that natural talent, but because he also works hard, you know, makes him the best. Love more. We get to, and I've been looking forward to this, we get to 4th of February 2007. You're fighting a fella out of Tunisia by the name of Ben Rubber, and it is ostensibly a world title fight. It was, I watched a bit of it in, uh, in, on YouTube um, today. It was called the Australian Fight of the Year. And at one point, the commentators were saying, this is like a Rocky movie. So that's, people can understand. It was toe-to-toe, hammer and tong, all those cliches is what it was. Two men slugging it out. Nice left hook there from the dude. Oh, and again, a short right hand, but it's a slip to the canvas. It was a good touch there, there from the dude. What are your memories of what I presume at that point was the greatest day in your boxing career? It was. It was, like I said, oh. winning a world title is every fighter's dream. To eventually get that opportunity to fight for a world title and here in Australia. But there was also, you know, a lot of bad blood going on because leading up to the fight, Ben Rabah and his camp have said a lot of things to try and upset me. 
And it and that had been going on for years because Ben Rabba had been challenging me, but I kept telling him when the money is right, I'll fight him. Right. At the time, you know, the fight wasn't right for me. But he just kept mouthing off and calling me names. And um so it was eventually, you know, it was an opportunity for me to make him pay when hmm. I eventually got to fight him. And 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 Rabba was in a you know, he was a good fighter. I gotta give that to him, you know, he was very slick and he came to fight. But I knew with my fitness, my toughness, and, you know, uh, my experience, I knew I was going to eventually weigh him down and knock him out. And that's what happened. I took him up to the 11th round and I wore him down and I knocked him out. And I recall, you know, after the fight, they had to take him to hospital by ambulance. It was a tough fight. But to eventually win that world title, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, to see my children jumping into the ring and hugging me, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened in my life. He doesn't know which court he's going to give it up. He don't want to go on. He's given up. It's over. It's over. It's all over. So describe it to me. You, you've told us a story about a young bloke fighting a regime, swimming against crocodiles, getting on a bus, going to Johannesburg, sleeping on the floor of a gym, coming to a new country, and all of a sudden you're there with your hands in the air, with your family around you. Yes, I was a world champion. It's epic. It's epic. It was epic. But you know what? I always felt something was missing because I looked around and I saw everybody was celebrating with me. But, you know, I always felt one person was missing, if not two. My mother and my father. You know, my mother was my inspiration. When I started boxing, mm. she was always there to support me. Even though she never watched my fights, she would never watch my fights. I recall she used to wake me up at 5 you know, a.m. every morning to go running. She used to tell me, you know, love more, you want to be a great fighter, you got to run around, you know, like like that crazy man, Muhammad Ali. <laughs> <laughs> so I would get up at five, I'll go run. And when I come back from running, I would come back and find, you know, she's prepared water for me to bath before I went to school. We didn't have electricity. So that meant she had to prepare fire, wood fire, boil water and prepare porridge for me as well. And she continued doing that even up to the last days in this world because she had problems. She eventually died from a heart problem but even at a time when, you know, her health wasn't so good, she continued. And I recall on the day she passed away, she told me, love more, chase your dream. Someday you're going to make me, you know, proud. You know, I felt winning that world title was that opportunity. I was making her proud. But when I looked around, she wasn't around. So I just felt something was missing. And that's, that's what was missing. And, and look, it's always been like that. Even when I graduated, you know, with all my university degrees, each time I graduate, I look around and I, I always wished, you know, my parents were around to see what I've achieved so far, you know. And which is why I always tell, you know, children, you know, whether they're mine or not, I always tell, tell everybody, you know, you got to love and appreciate your parents because someday they're going to be gone and you're going to miss them and you're going to wish they were here. Are now talking about children... You, you face the big penguin. Now you get my daughter. Now you get my daughter, who's 11. Her name is Sky. She 
is the pickle. <laughs> Why the pickle? <laughs> I don't know. I, that, I don't know. I, that's a really good question. As a young girl, I think I used to call her pickle pants and it just stuck. I think now she's 11. She's just hanging on. I think when she gets to 12, she might say, Dad, stop calling me pickle. But anyway, love more. Here we go. Here we go. You ready? Yes. <laughs> I love more pickle here. When I grow up, I want to be a lawyer, like you. How much study is involved? And what's your favourite part of being a lawyer? Hello, Pickles. Yeah, I'm glad you want to be a lawyer. You can come work with me. <laughs> I could think of no better person to show her the ropes than you, Lovemore. My biggest thing about law is, you know, helping out people. Nothing makes me more happier and more proud knowing that, you know, I've helped someone solve their problem. Because my job involves trying to resolve other people's problems. So it, it, I get that happiness just knowing that, you know, I've helped someone and I've helped someone fight for justice. That's the best thing about being a lawyer, Pickles. That is a beautiful answer. Mate, mate you talked about your, your education. Can you run me through the different degrees you have? You might have too many. You can't remember them all. <laughs> I've got a bachelor's degree in law, bachelor's degree in communication, a graduate diploma in legal practice. I've got a master's in criminal prosecution. I've got a master's in family law. I've got a master's in human rights law and policy, pursuing a master's in political science. Wow. That, that, that impresses me because I struggled to study and to someone that has the discipline that you obviously have to do it. So the, the obvious question, mate, following... Your incredible journey. You grow up in South Africa. You become a world champion. You've educated yourself beyond 99% of the community. And you're telling me the areas you've educated yourself in. Your homeland, for those that haven't been from my experience, is beautiful, spectacular, loving, wonderful, warm, friendly, but it also, like any country, still has its problems. At some point, do you go and put all these lessons you've learned? back into South Africa in a, you know, I don't know, in a political sphere, in a community sphere? Is that a natural progression at some point, Lovemore? I aspire to become a politician in South Africa in the future. Do you? Yes, that's one thing I, I, I intend to do. Eventually, I'm going to move back and get into politics, and I believe I could help bring some changes in, in South Africa. South Africa has been a democratic state since 1994, so it's been 26 years but 26, 26 years later, you know, we still have people using the bucket, you know, sanitation system. 26 years later, we still have mm. children going to bed or going to school in an, in an empty stomach. The crime rate, you know, has gone up the roof. Corruption is so bad, you know. It's like those in power are so corrupt to a point that one would think they should just, you know, create a position for minister of corruption. <laughs> They're so open about it because, you know, they, they don't answer to any to, to anyone. Yeah. Love more. I wish you luck on what will be a big, big journey if you take that on board. A final question for you, and you've given me so many things to think about, so thank you so much for that. You're welcome. For all the youngsters that are listening, we always finish this way. For all the youngsters out there that want to achieve something, love more, whether they want to be a boxer or a politician or a lawyer, or a sparky, or an engineer, if you could give them a piece of advice to take to their heart trying to move forward as a man that's achieved success in many fields, 
what would that piece of advice be? Believe in yourself. No matter, I always tell people, no matter where you come from, no matter, it doesn't matter whether you didn't have a better start, you know, better start in life, but if you believe in yourself and you continue to work hard and stay dedicated, you will become whatever or whoever you want to become. So believe in yourself. Love more. I've done 117, 118 of these now. This is a spectacular episode. I can't thank you enough for being so open, talking about some things that are obviously really difficult. I hope I asked questions that were appropriate and relevant. I'm not sure if I did, but, mate, thanks for telling me your story. As I said, the book Tough Love, everybody needs to read it. Hey, good luck with everything moving forward, whether it's uh, in your law practice there or with your family and your kids or heading to South Africa. I hope I get to meet you in person one day. That'd be a real thrill for me. Thanks for joining me on the Howie Games. Look, you, uh, every question you asked was very appropriate. Thank you for having me you know, on your show. You know, It's been a pleasure and God bless. Stay safe. Cheers, mate. Love Morton, though, a truly, truly incredible man. Not really much else I can say, but thanks to Love More for his openness in discussing events in his life that must have been really, really difficult to talk about. Once again, his book, Tough Love, the amazing true story of a boxing world champion turned lawyer, is well and truly worth a read. Until next Thursday, when Nick Natanui joins the show, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener